were so excited beyond words that we have been able to get an old friend, Avinash Prasad, to come and join us on the podcast today. Now, Avi needs no introduction for people in the sovereign debt world or folks in the climate world. He has been all over the news, including, I think, yesterday in Martin Wolf's column in the Financial Times. But I have a story, of course. And so I'm going to tell my story before Mark asks all the intelligent questions. And my story uh, connects to a dear friend of our podcast, Anna Galpern. And years ago, Anna and I were working on this project to try and understand when, if ever, debt managers were willing to innovate. And it it seemed like they were never willing to innovate. But we decided it was Anna's idea, because she studied anthropology, that we should actually go and talk to these people. And so I I thought this is going to be a great project because I get to travel around the world. And Anna is a wonderful, wonderful traveler who speaks 15 different languages. It's fun to travel with her. But she kept taking us to these really cold Northern European and Eastern European countries that I did not want to go to. And the promise that she made to me every time I would complain was, I have this friend, Avi, who promises us that if we come to visit him, we get to sit in hammocks on the beach in Barbados. And we never got to go. And I curse Anna every day that we did the project and we never got to go. Uh, But that's how I know Avi, even though he is world famous. So Avi, uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Avi, now that I've told my story, I want to start out, you have been well known as an innovator and a policymaker and someone who understands the markets for years. And Anna has often told us to talk to you, and I have come to you for advice on initiatives. But I think never before have you been able to really get the attention of the entire global community in a very positive way like this. And I I say that in the context of it is so hard to do what you've done, but it's happened with this Bridgetown initiative where everybody seems to be on board to want to support this. So can you tell us a little bit about this? What is it? And does it surprise you that it's really picked up in terms of enthusiasm? Well, let let me tell you my own little story, which was um, I got thrust into the debate on reforming global banking regulation. And uh, for a long time, I and my colleagues have been toiling in the the fields of global banking regulation and arguing uh, that banking regulation was too micro-prudential focus on individual banks and not enough macro-prudential that um, by making individual banks safe 
You could make the system unsafe, all of them trying to act at the same time in the same way uh, might, uh, although individually appear to be acting safer, lead to something worse. Um, let's say they're all trying to sell uh, risky assets at the same time. Um, the, 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 the price of these things would collapse and they'd they need to revalue their portfolios and they'd appear to have less uh, wealth and capital and they'd get into more trouble. So um, we, um, uh, we, we, we wrote about macroprudential regulation um, and uh, they managed to, we managed to uh, change Basel III. And a few years later, I was um, doing uh, the vain thing of Googling my name because someone had said they'd seen me in an article recently and were disagreeing with what I said. So I thought I'd try and find the article. And um, up came another article by Professor Baker, who'd written a piece about how a small group of people had changed global banking regulation. And he mapped out this strategy about how we were all in overlapping committees. We wrote op-eds in the Financial Times. We developed the advocacy. And I'm reading this thinking, wow, that would have been a great strategy if it had been the strategy. But of course, it was what happened was entirely accidental. But I learned from that. And I learned that that is a strategy you need, that policymakers, um, that there's a time of crisis where a vacuum emerges, they need to announce something. They need to tell their public that something is being done. And you need to thrust in their hand a blueprint and that you need to be advocating for that blueprint in newspapers. You need to, uh, the, 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 these blueprints may be complicated, they may be technical, but you've got to boil it down into 750 understandable words that appear in op-eds of newspapers. And there is a internal game around technical people and an external game in raising the interest and excitement of an idea. And that's really what we've done with, with uh, the Bridgetown Initiative. Climate change has become an important issue. A moment has arisen, a vacuum is there. Why the moment has arisen today? Well, maybe that's a, 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 a concerted level of tragedies. The melting of the glaciers in Pakistan, scorching summer in Europe, flooding in California and Southern America, um, and all of these combined to make people realize the climate was changing and they needed to act. Uh, and the thing that we worked on the Bridgetown Initiative was to, we realized that if something was going to work globally, it, they, it needed a global coalition. It needed rich countries to agree to an agenda that was concerned about the vulnerability of certain countries uh, to climate change, the vulnerability of people, countries, the world to climate change. But you needed rich countries to back your idea. It can't just be about uh, the victims of climate change. And so we developed an agenda in which we recognized that nobody has lots of money to pay foreigners. Nobody, no government's getting elected to, uh, to send taxpayers' money abroad. And the agenda is about uh, how much more we can do 
with existing resources that the multilateral development banks like the World Bank and the, uh, uh, the, the African Development Bank and the Asian Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, these banks have significant amounts of capital that they are under leveraging. And so they need to spend a lot more of this, of their existing uh, lending capacity. They also need to prioritize um, vulnerability, which they don't do at the moment, especially climate vulnerability, to allow them to lend to countries that are uh, building their resilience today. And um, they can do that without anyone having to write some big checks. And then the major part of climate mitigation is, is transforming energy, transforming transport, transforming agriculture. And these are things that actually have revenue streams attached to it. These are things that make money. So we need to find ways of getting and mobilizing private sector savings. And it, this could be the private sector savings of all countries, Northern and Southern. Um, and I think that it is that combination of things, the recognition that we need a much greater scale of effort, that finance is the underlying constraint, that country, no country has spare cash lying around, and that we need to uh, mobilize existing savings and existing resources. I think that's why the agenda is catching on so strongly. So, uh, Avi, it sounds to me like there are a number of shifts that are reflected in this, so a shift away from, I guess, the narrative of climate reparations and, and um, more towards a market and investment-oriented narrative, but also a shift away from, there's tons of talk about climate finance, as you know, and, and a lot of it seems to take the form of relatively unrestricted lending to governments or even corporations who make sort of nebulous promises that they're going to do climate-friendly stuff. And it sounds like you're talking much more about climate, uh, about project finance. Um, so I, I think this is the, the Climate Mitigation Trust is central to all of this. And so I'm wondering if you can give us the elevator pitch version of the problems the Climate Mitigation Trust is um, intended to solve and how it does that. So um, they are three different climate issues. There's climate mitigation, and, and that means um, how do we uh, change what we do so we're making much, we're, we are producing much lower emissions. So you might call climate mitigation the transformation to a low carbon future. Then there's climate adaptation. So because we ain't mitigating enough, we have climate change baked in. And we need to make countries, um, communities, citizens, individuals, um, more resilient to the climate change baked in. So that's climate adaptation. It's a smaller number, but it's a critical number. And then there is climate loss and damage. So because we're not doing enough adaptation, there isn't enough resilience, there's a tremendous amount of loss and damage. Now, the biggest number here, is mitigation. Mitigation is probably a four, five, maybe more trillion dollars a year job. Adaptation is maybe a uh, 400, 500 billion dollars a year job. And loss and damage is about 100 billion dollars a year. 
And we're saying, look, these three different things, the amount of money we need is a lot. These three different things they are very different from each other, and they can therefore have different financing. So we can use the private sector for mitigation because they are revenue streams attached. But we need to find ways to encourage the private sector to invest all over the world. And the thing that's holding them back is the cost of capital, the, the, the risks. And these are risks that are not related to the politics of a country, to the, 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 the financing of a project. They're often related to international macroeconomic risks, international economic risks, international finance risks. You know, whenever the world has a crisis, global money floods into the safe havens, the United States, the, the, uh, the euro, and it floods out of countries perceived to be risky, uh, not to have countries that don't have uh, resilience, financial resilience. And when they fly out of the countries without financial resilience, interest rates have to go up to defend the currency from collapsing. Um, uh, governments have to, to show that they are fiscally sound. So they have to act counter-cyclically. They have to uh, tighten their monetary policies, tighten their fiscal policies, raise interest rates, cut spending. And that makes the crisis even worse. And the private sector says, um, look, I, I need some compensation for these risks. You, you know, you, you're going to have a social unrest. You're going to have rioters in the street. You're going to nationalize me. I need compensation for that. Uh, and that's why the cost of capital is so high. The Climate Mitigation Trust is a way of trying to say that a solar farm in Germany, which has the same technology as a solar farm in South Africa, we need to get the cost of capital to be very similar because essentially these are, this is the same thing. Um, and, um, uh, and we think that we can use special drawing rights uh, which is a sort of IMS, IMF currency, allows the IMF member states to borrow from each other at very low interest rates. Uh, to seed a trust, they can borrow against these SDRs uh, and invest in these projects at very low cost to lower the cost of capital. That's climate mitigation. You can't get the private sector involved in adaptation, though, because there's no revenue streams for them. So we need to borrow from the multilateral development banks. I mean, to expand their capacity to lend by them using their existing capital more. And then we need new taxes and new additional revenue streams to fund loss and damage because you can't borrow whenever you get your, your, your towns get flooded by a hurricane. You'll be washed away in a sea of debt if you kept on doing that. We need new taxes, new levies, levies, that fund loss and damage. So that's the framework uh, of the Bridgetown Initiative. So Avi, um, maybe we can get uh, into the weeds a little bit here. And I want to ask you, and I think Mark shares my view, we want to ask you about both the multilateral development bank part of this and the natural disaster clauses that you guys have been advocating and that we have talked about on our podcast. But let's start with the official sector support. So what, one of 
the the attractive things I think about uh, the Bridgetown Initiative is that it is posed in market terms. It, it is not posed as just a, a reparations, uh, pay us for your sins towards us. It's pragmatic and says that there's market value here. But I'll confess that from past experience dealing with official sector support for bond issuances. So I was part of a group that attempted to get IMF World Bank support during COVID uh, to help countries that we expected to be in crisis. Turns out the market was willing to give them tons of money anyway. Uh, but the official sector, both those institutions were willing to attend meetings, uh, but to give their support to enhance the credit of any instruments was complete anathema. And they kept talking about, oh, are you know, you're putting in danger or um, you know, priority status. And I, I always like pointing out to them, they actually have no legal priority status. This is just a largely a myth, but they just, they don't want to do it. These are incredibly conservative institutions, best I can tell, uh, every time I have to deal with them. And then there's also the fact that when they do add their credit, we saw this with the uh, credibility enhancement elements of the I, I think it was the World Bank support for loans uh, issued by Argentina and loans issued by Ghana most recently. They've completely mucked it up and they everybody has lost in the process. So I know you guys have gotten support for this and it, I think that's something of a miracle, but do you think it's going to work for them to give you the enhancement when it comes, when push comes to shove, or this is just empty talk and something else will have to be done? Well, um, I think you're quite right that it is not uh, easy for those, for borrowers to get the, the amount of borrowing lending they need from these institutions. So our plan of attack has not been to persuade the World Bank. Our plan of attack has been to persuade their owners, the shareholders. The shareholders have to drive this. It's not going to be driven by the bank. The bank and its sister organizations and other similar institutions around the world have spent the last 25 years perfecting their excuse for why they can't do more. They can't reform themselves. The shareholders have to do it. And the shareholders recognize uh, that um, more needs to be done. Otherwise, there will be um, more and more calls uh, upon their countries, um, whether it's because of climate uh, migration, uh, shock of loss and damage happening all over the world. And so what we're asking for is for the shareholders to um, uh, basically uh, encourage the banks, mandate the banks to use their capital in a much more efficient way and to increase their available resources through things like um, 
uh, hybrid capital, uh, callable capital. So that's capital where you don't actually transfer money today, but you write a, uh, a note that says that uh, if the bank goes bust, you're going to be providing capital then. Um, and that will allow the bank uh, to lend more. Uh, but the shareholders have to drive that those lending mandates and those lending targets. Um, take the take the World Bank's uh, uh, guarantee institution, the uh, multilateral uh, ins insurance and guarantee uh, agency, Amiga. They proudly tell people that they've never suffered a loss. Well, if you've never suffered a loss, it means you're not doing enough because they have capital. Why do they have capital for? In order to protect them against losses that will happen. Um, so we really need these institutions to, to uh, use their existing resources uh, so much more, but the shareholders have to drive that. Can we follow up on the, the second question that Me Too alluded to, which is something that I've been interested in, and it has to do with the push to both expand the use and expand the scope of the natural disaster type clauses akin um, to the ones that Barbados itself has used. And as I understand it, the, there's really been no indication of any kind of pricing penalty for the use of these clauses. And I think that the simplest way to put my question is to say whether, to ask whether we have the same degree of confidence that the market will react positively or at least neutrally if these clauses are expanded in their scope to include things like pandemics and you know really the range of external shocks is quite large you could have an aggressive neighbor that invades you just hypothetically there are all kinds of things um the reason i ask is that it seems to me in the clauses current incarnation they mostly cover situations where an investor would really not expect to be paid anyway. And so then the clause is at worst neutral and at best, you know, a good thing. It, it sort of smooths the, the process and eliminates the need to negotiate for a reprofiling. But it seems like, so contrary to expectations, one thing that's clear is that countries often pay when they really shouldn't, like when they're faced with the tremendous need to respond to pandemics and so forth. And so I'm, I'm wondering what, what the market reaction is likely to be if these clauses are become both more widespread, but also give a, a breathing space to countries in a wider range of, of circumstances. Avi, can I just add on to uh, Mark's question? And please feel free to disregard this. And Mark is probably like asking why I'm interrupting his question. But one of the, I couldn't help when I was preparing for the podcast and I, reading some of the materials and listening to your New York Times podcast, think of Pakistan. And you mentioned Pakistan at the beginning, and they, they've really had an existential crisis because of the floods. And they keep going to the press and saying, yeah, we need, we desperately need a lot of relief, uh, but we're going to pay all of our creditors on time and in full. And I'm thinking, th th for goodness sake, you need relief. Like, why don't, this is the opportunity to do something. It's not your fault. It's the rest of the world's fault that you are in this 
climate disaster and maybe ask for help this time. But they're not asking for help and the crisis is getting worse and worse. I think that these are uh, related but, but separate issues. Um, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, you can imagine a number of insurance companies have come to us and said, why natural disaster causes and not um, CAT bonds, catastrophic uh, insurance bonds? And our argument is uh, uh, something that they don't want to hear, which is that we say that climate change is an uninsurable event. Insurable events are things that you don't know the precise timing of when something will happen, but in the long run, the risk of it happening is pretty steady. So you can price this insurance. And it is a risk that is uncorrelated with a lot of other stuff. So it allows you to lay off and spread and pull the risks with other risks. The problem with climate change is that we've got increasing evidence of increasing certainty of a rising risk and a rising risk that is increasingly correlated with other risks. Because of climate change, we have increased flooding and increased droughts in the same year. We have, because of the warming seas, we suddenly have sargassum seaweed that is clogging up our beaches and impacting our tourism revenues. Um, so climate change is an uninsurable event. So you need something that's not a piece of insurance where the investors are not taking a bet on the event taking place. And of course, these clauses are designed to be NPV neutral. There is a relief of interest and uh, principal for two years. And then this is added back on um, at the end of the bond uh, at, a, at a rate of interest that is close to the original rate, but slightly higher so that these it clauses are net present value neutral. The creditors no worse off uh, for this two-year hiatus, but the two-year extension uh, of the instrument. Now, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why we like these instruments, um, and, and, and they're going to be truly transformational if everybody had them. If every developing country had them, this would have released $1 trillion of liquidity during the pandemic. $1 trillion. There is no instrument out there that comes anywhere close to that kind of support. The, the DSSI, of course, as you know, the debt service um, suspension initiative probably released around what, 11, 12 billion dollars. So this is almost 100 times more. And um, the total amount of expenditure of developing countries during the pandemic was around half a trillion. So if they'd had an additional one trillion, they could have had a much bigger um, support for their economies and their health systems uh, if they had these clauses. Now, the other advantage of these clauses is you're absolutely correct. Countries are reluctant to restructure. I call this fear of fund. For them to restructure, they've got to go to the IMF because it's very hard for them to restructure outside of the IMF. As you know, creditors will say, oh, hang on, you're coming to, uh, to, to default on your debt. How do I know? And you want to renegotiate your debt. How do I know you're going to default next year? or the year after, because there are no arrears allowed in a fund program, 
A fund program gives countries the credibility of saying, I'm going to default now, but I'm not going to default again for a long period of time because they're going to be in a fund program. Uh, and that allows them to negotiate a better deal with their creditors. But in, in return, they're in a fund program. That's how they can commit to there being no uh, further default and no further, uh, because no further arrears can be built up. And these fund programs um, are things that countries fear. Um, they fear because they believe they are ad hoc, they are politically motivated, they've got particular ideology about the underlying uh, economic uh, responses. And so we need to find ways of, of reducing fear of fund. Um, uh, and we, we need um, market-wide, uh, country-wide, universal um, liquidity programs that a fund commits to which countries know exactly what will happen in a program, and they can make that assessment beforehand. But the beauty of our clauses is there's no fund program required. You get liquidity when you need it most without any difficult negotiation. And this comes back to a final point you're making um, about um, uh, how will the market respond to this. I think that if you are a creditor holding um, uh, Pakistan bonds today. The, the Pakistanis are coming out on a regular basis telling you that there will be no default, but you're thinking, um, God, surely they're going to default. Surely it doesn't make sense in this, in this moment for them to be paying. And the uncertainty creates a challenge for the creditor. They don't know how to price that uncertainty. Uh, and it's a cost because there is clearly some kind of of risk of a default. The natural disaster clauses makes it very clear what's gonna happen, very predictable. So predictable, you could even go to someone who would be happy to be on the other side of your disaster clause. That period of time where you as a creditor are not gonna get paid, you could go to an insurance company and, and swap it with them and they can pay you instead. Uh, an insurance company gets the, the income uh, when the bond is extended. So that predictability um, that automaticity uh, protects countries from the conditionality of a fund program, from the uncertainty of a fund program, from the politics of a fund program, and gives them liquidity when they need it. It doesn't solve their solvency problems, but it solves their liquidity issues. And so therefore, you know, it's not the be all and end all, but one of the challenges of development is that these countries have very little access to liquidity. So liquidity problems very, very quickly become solvency problems. If every country had natural disaster clauses, we would transform the global architecture of debt. We would make the system much more uh, shock absorbing. And in a world of climate change, in a world of pandemics, this is the world of greater global shocks, more frequent, more global. This clause would really transform our financial system. And uh, we've had a lot of interest in this. Uh, as, as you said, we are the world's largest issuer of natural disaster clauses. We're the first issuer of pandemic clauses. Um, but we're tiny, tiny, tiny. We need, uh, we need a big borrower to, to start issuing this, announce it, so the market can see that these things are not going to carry an interest rate penalty and encourage everyone to have them. Um, we're hoping that will happen later this year, perhaps around June, 
uh, of this year, you will see a big borrower uh, adopt them and hopefully other countries will follow suit. So I, I know we need to let you go uh, and that we've taken up a bunch of your time already, but I'm hoping uh, you can at least uh, indulge one more question about the state of climate finance in general and the green bond market in particular. I kind of alluded earlier to my own skepticism about that market, and I think I think Me Too shares it. Um, but I'm wondering whether you think instruments that are purportedly targeted to uh, to green, not projects directly, but to supporting green investments by sovereigns in particular, whether you think there's a role uh, for that kind of instrument to play in dealing with climate adaptation and mitigation? Um, today, pledges by investors, carbon credits, green bonds, they are tiny. They don't move the needle. Will they in the future? Maybe. So I don't want to discourage them, um, but that they that they, uh, they, they're a sideshow. Uh, could they become big? I think it's very hard. currently we have a voluntary carbon credit market um, uh, in terms of international cross border carbon credits. And of course, the problem with the voluntary market is very hard to verify um, whether there's genuine green activity going on. Um, I, we're not focused on those things. Um, we, we think, you know, the more the better, maybe they'll part the future, but we really need to lower the cost of funding South Africa, Indonesia, India's energy transformation. India, one of the you know, world's largest economies, um, the cost of capital of them transforming uh, to renewables um, is probably around nine to 10 percentage points. That makes a lot of renewable projects unprofitable. In developing countries, the governments are doing renewable energy projects. The cost of capital is too high for the private sector to do it. And when And developing countries, they're limited. They can't do a lot more. Uh, that's why if we want to really transform uh, the climate, transform energy, mitigate, we're going to need to reduce the cost of capital for the private sector to invest in these projects. And that's why we need something um, like uh, a fund uh, that could invest equity or low cost debt in these projects um, to, to really excite um, and attract the private sector in, into them at the moment. Uh, they're afraid to go there. They seem too risky. Well, Avi, thank you so very much. This has been incredible for us. It'll be wonderful for our students to get to listen to you and talk about the ideas that you've put out. And Mark and I uh, are, are so eager to see the success of the work that you have done. So our applause and support will always be there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.